Hello and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't already, make sure you listen to last week's episode with Mike Brown. Mike's episode, the second of a two-parter, brought in a record number of listeners. He talks honestly and candidly about his relationship with the former England boss, Eddie Jones, and the reason why he thinks the Grand Slam winning England team began to fall apart. This week's episode is with the very impressive Piers Martin. He's currently Head of Leadership and Academy Workforce Development at the Premier League. He also recently joined the Board of Directors at British Swimming, has held numerous positions across a range of NGBs, and is the former chair of UK Deaf Sport. Piers is a very experienced, very knowledgeable leader, and in this week's episode, we cover a range of topics. We talk about the balance between being introverted and extroverted, imposter syndrome, vulnerable leadership, how to develop professional maturity, what is ethical leadership, and, of course, his role at the Premier League and the challenges he faces. If you want to find out how to be the best version of you, then listen to this week's episode with Piers Martin. If you enjoyed this week's episode of the podcast, please join us at theolympicmindsetpodcast.com and sign up for our free resources. Before today's episode begins, I wanted to take a moment of your time to talk to you about our latest partner. Today's episode is brought to you by ClassVR from Avantis Education. ClassVR is an award-winning, all-in-one VR and AR system for schools. It's designed specifically to help raise student engagement and increase knowledge retention. I was first introduced to ClassVR back in 2017 when I was a deputy head teacher, and it provided me with creating exceptional learning environments. And it has done for more than 1 million students in over 100,000 classrooms in 90 countries across the globe. ClassVR is unique in that it was designed from the ground up solely for education. Headsets are classroom ready with everything an educator needs to deliver fully immersive VR and AR learning experiences to their students. And with thousands of curriculum-led resources, your children can walk with dinosaurs, hold a beating heart in their hands or travel the world without leaving the classroom. Now, regular listeners will know that I'm a passionate educator and I'm lucky enough to have experienced Class VR firsthand in my classroom. And I can't tell you how wonderful it was to witness when my students were truly engaged in their learning. ClassVR empowers teachers to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. If you're interested, visit classvr.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, Piers Martin. Very, very excited to have you with me. First of all, I do want to say really, really keen to listen to your lessons in life and leadership and all the different experiences you have from the range of different roles that you've held, some very challenging roles as well, Piers, but selfishly from my perspective as a former head teacher, as a director of education, I'm really eager to learn and listen to your experiences and see how they can be applied to myself in my role. Now, that shouldn't be too difficult to ask this week because I know that you come from a family of academics, right? Yeah, in fact... um... I went back to the school. Um, my dad's stepping down as chairman of the governors, and so the school's 450th anniversary. And um, just to, we, we got a range of headmasters um, that that were um, 
that were there when I was there. That that that, that dad's had several of them, um, and it was a really touching moment actually because he's seen the school develop like hugely over a period of time. Obviously, it's much better now. I've gone. Um, <laughs> grade, grades have gone up. Ofsted's yeah. outstanding. <laughs> oh, you saw my brother this week as well, didn't you? Yeah. So we had a we had a summit, um, a leadership summit, which is uh, leading with a culture of diversity and care. And um, and then he'd gone off to he's because he's moved to a head of coaching. He's gone off to one of the other programs. So uh, nice warm up for him. So he's had he's had a full week of learning this week. He's probably dangling off a mountain somewhere at the moment. Yeah, I think he's back today. He sent me. A, they, do you know my brother's scared of heights? Like petrified. I, I I remember from when he did our one that he was managing it, but yeah. So he's been texting all week because as a family, we all know this about him. And it's really funny <laughs> to, to me as a brother. Um, but, you know, he's been texting us updates. I'm really proud of him, actually. You know, the fact yeah. he's uh, he's managed to overcome those fears and support others. I think it's been a really, really clever way of kind of pushing him, him personally outside of his comfort zone. And it's been good yeah. for him as well. Um, I might steal that idea, actually, and use it with some of my head teachers. What to to take them out to to the lakes and yeah, I think so. I think that's the point of this podcast, right? I think we can learn a lot from people in a physical environment sometimes. And yeah, when, when you push somebody out to their comfort zone, I'm not talking about making them run a hundred meters or something, but you know that kind of thing. You know, I think is really clever and is a really good use of um of time and resource at the moment as well yeah. because it's good for your well being, isn't it, to get outside and. Three days, uh, the research shows that if you're out in nature for three days and you're away from technology, then not only do you start feeling healthier, but you, your, your brain is more, uh, it's more effective. So your cognitive process is more effective once you've been out in, in nature for more than three days. And so that's why we do it. We, we take people away from the business, away from the football club, and we put people clearly the, the phrase abseiling isn't going to make me a better academy manager springs to mind it's not the point but well-being will and working out how to think better and more clearly matters and so that's why um i i love being asked why i love it when people sit in the room <clears throat> and they fold their arms and say impress me and um, whether they say it out loud i can read it um but the the purpose of it is to answer why. Why am I here? Why am I sat in the room? And we have a duty to be able to answer that question as as, as those facilitating learning. I love that. So we've, do you know what? Let's just skip straight into the podcast because I think that's a really okay. interesting topic you, sure. you've touched on there, Piers. So you're, you've obviously put this program <clears throat> together for academy leaders, for example. You're, you know, you're being challenged verbally or maybe not verbally. So do you work hard on the um, the theory before you put together a program or do you kind of think of what you would like to do based on your experiences and then go back and retrospectively fit the theory to kind of structure so, your argument? All of our, all of our leadership programs are, are based around some core principles. So I, I always want to be able to explain why to the learner, why are we doing things in the way that we are? Um, and those, those principles are, tend to be based on evidence uh, or things that we know work so that we can explain that and we can show why we're doing things so we know that learners learn in, in in a broad range of ways it's not just sitting in a classroom in fact classroom isn't necessarily the best environment but it has its place um we know that 
that, that learning on the job is really important. We know that learning from each other, social learning, sort of interactive learning. We know that um, understanding when things go wrong and sharing that works really, really well. So we, we focus on the mentors and, the, and peer learning and, and we understand that they're going to gain from a range of different environments. And we know that reflection works. We know that reflective practice, reflective learning works really, really well. So we'll encourage and, and teach how that can be more effective. Most of the people that we work with tend to come from a playing or a coaching background. Um, and so therefore they do it already. They understand how to reflect. They understand how to be a um, the difference between a commentator on a game or a pundit afterwards or a coach is that they're not just describing, they're, they're, they're drawing out what's happened and they're, they're changing behaviours for the next, the next iteration of what they do. Um, so reflective practice is core to what we do. And we know, of course, that putting those reflections into some kind of goal, some kind of action works. It's the, the what, the description of what's happened, the so what in relation to, to me as an individual and now what in terms of what those goals are going to be. Um, and then relating that back to me, to my individual needs, everything is needs-based. So we, we help that learner to understand themselves, to understand um, and to grow in terms of their self-awareness. Um, and finally, we, we, we asked them to sort of summarise how they've changed, because at the end of the day, learning is about how you how you change. How have I changed as a, a learner and as a leader over a period of time? Um, and we asked them to sort of summarise that. So those are the basic principles. Um, and the way in which we run programmes as a, as a framework is that we're not trying to re replace expertise elsewhere. So we're not trying to say we're, we're going to run the best programme with the best content. But if we can run that needs-based um, start of the programme, we can explain and we can identify themes with them. So it's a discursive process. If we can then help them to identify what their learning plan will look like for them over the period going into the future. And then we can provide what I would call sort of springboard sessions where we'll take some um, some modules, some ideas, some, some content, but we'll encourage them to go find it elsewhere and we'll chapterize that content. So we'll say, we've got some books that we think you should read. These are some good chapters, core chapters, if you like, for what you need, but tell us where you're gonna get it elsewhere and if you've heard something or you've watched a TED talk or you've read a book or you've got a brilliant leader in your organization, share it, share that peer learning and stuff. Um, and as I said before, mentors are absolutely core. So we make sure that we heavily invest in mentoring and we invest in supporting that peer learning as they as they go through. So that those are the frameworks, essentially, that the why we do it and the how we do it. Your role at the moment is head of leadership and Academy Workforce Development at the Premier League, which is, you know, nice job title. You're obviously a former CEO, you're non-executive director, you've been chair of the board for many different organisations. How significant has your upbringing in a family of academics been to that kind of role and that progress through um, into leadership positions? Do you think that's really helped inform the way that you act and, and the behaviours? Or, you know, I guess what I'm asking is coming from a family of academics, how significant has that been and how significant has the impact been on your career trajectory? I think it's had a, a massive impact, but you know, when I was at school, all I wanted to do was play sport. 
Um, and I was very lucky that I had a school that was um, focused on both academic work and, and sport. Um, I remember going back to the, the school to talk to some of the, the younger pupils there. And I did a, a talk on being OK. I, I felt I was average in my year group. Um, but because the school had such an academic focus, I came out as average in my, my year group. But, but actually, it set me up for life in terms of learning. But realistically, it was only when I started to identify that to get on, I needed to learn in different ways. Um, and I looked at what that could be, academic, going and doing a, a master's in, in psychology or an MBA and, and understanding the business or the psychology of leadership. But also, I learned a huge amount from being thrown in at the deep end. My first chief exec role, I was quite young. Um, now, in a way, that was fantastic because everybody around me didn't see me as a threat. Yeah. I was very lucky that chief execs of other sports would help me to develop. And, and we really open and vulnerable when perhaps they wouldn't be with other people. So that my learning was on such a, a brilliant trajectory. So that was British. Um, was that British fencing? Yeah. Yeah. That. Sorry, carry on. I just wondered that was British fencing. And obviously, how old would you have been then, Piers? I would have been early early thirties, I think, when I wow. When so I took yeah, that very up. young. Um, and the, I think that for me as a leader, I was there was no there was no in between. I I had this pendulum swing between being supremely confident. I know what I'm talking about. It's it's um it's an organisation which is traditional. It needs to change. It's not particularly diverse. Um, I think it's it, it's a very traditional sport fencing. Um, but there are some brilliant brilliant people. Um, so it was an excellent opportunity. So I'd be supremely confident one second, and then the pendulum swing. Somebody would say something, and I would go to imposter syndrome, and and in a way hiding that imposter syndrome. I mean this is. Beijing Olympics to London Olympics. So it's not that long ago. But at that time, I couldn't feel, I didn't feel like I could be vulnerable. I did, I could put my hand up and say, look, I'm 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 feeling like I'm the wrong person for this job. Um and and there were lots of people that didn't think we needed a chief exec. It was an old committee-led organization, and UK Sport had um had said in return for the money we're giving you, you have to set up a professional structure. So I was the inaugural chief exec. So I would flow from being really confident, setting things up that I knew would work. Um, and I would really drive that change positively and confidently. And then the next minute I'd be sat there thinking, I'm going to get sacked in a minute. They're going to find <laughs> me out. So what um, what was the most significant thing that you set up? Was it a particular project or process? What was the most significant thing you set up during that period? And were there any learnings from when you set that up? I think um, I'm most proud of the work that we did around the, the British Fencing Academy, which is um, how do we bring together parents, coaches and support and and athletes? Because when I first came in, um, not, not necessarily to the detriment of, of each of the individual sports, everything was ad hoc. You, you have three different weapons, foil, epee, sabre, um, and you have a range of different age groups and, of course, then male and female. And so you've got all of these different pockets of people trying to do different things in a different way and drawing that together strategically, but also understanding that it wasn't just about 
the athlete at the centre. It was about the coach, the sports science support. It was about understanding the parents and the, the, the parental involvement. And, and fencing um, is, is, is a sport whereby I think the diversity changed during my time, but it can be an expensive sport. It can be yeah. a barrier to entry for those who live in, um, in poor areas or have um, poorer upbringing. Um, and I think that changed towards London, partly because of where um, the, the Olympic Village was. And, and I think one of the key things as well was that diversity was wrapped around nobody nobody owns the flag. Everybody would have GBR written on their, their back. And, and, and in a way, it took away the value of working towards and, and, and getting into a team. Because if everybody was competing for GB and everyone had a, a, a GB tracksuit, there, there became no value in achieving that and achieving the, the next level up and achieving the next level up. And you don't own the flag. We're just looking after it. It, it, that element of stewardship and values is, was also really important in terms of we are we are all working together to make sure that you are um, you're looking after that GB kit for the next person. You know, then there's a history, especially in fencing, there's a history there that we learn from. But also to be able to modernise such a traditional support, I'm I'm most proud of that. That's that's great, and it sounds like you were ahead of your time because that's very similar to what has now become quite popular with all the you know, the research and the findings from the book Legacy, you know, the New Zealand shirt, look after it and make sure it's better than when you found it. You know, yeah. it sounds like you were a little bit of your he- ahead of your time in terms of making sure that the flag is being looked after and then it can be handed on in, in a better way. So you've gone from being the figurehead of an organisation, CEO. You've obviously been COO of British Bobsled um, and Skeleton. You've been board member of a number of different organisations. What is the most significant difference between being the chair of a board and being the CEO, um, and which role did you prefer? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't think I prefer either. I, I do. I do enjoy really driving that change, and 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 thank you that, that a lot of the changes come from the people around. Um, I know it's a cliche, but the, the the team drawing together different people and, and, and making sure those individual differences, um, are the real strength of the of the team, worked. I think. Um, being the chair is difficult sometimes. Being an NED or a senior independent director is difficult sometimes because you are taking a step back and it's that fine balance of knowing when to step in and ask the difficult questions and when to step out. I, I was on um, a board with uh, a, a judge uh, a long time ago and one of the things that he would always say is children can ask why. We, you know, it, our, our, our position on a board is actually easy. We just ask the why. We don't do the difficult work. We don't come back to the board with the difficult, difficult questions. We we ask the questions. Our job is to ask the why. So in a way, it's an easy job, but you have all of that responsibility. But there is nothing, nothing like a, a lot of the organisations I worked with were startups or they were they were they were small organisations that were were building. And that's what I that's what excites me is the change. I think I would struggle if I was just brought in to be a steady hand at the tiller of a of a stable, large organisation. I enjoyed that turnaround, that entrepreneurship, that creative thinking, the disruptive thinking in a way. How can we turn things around um, in a good way? Um, and I'm always very careful about talking about that because I work in, I've worked in a number of organisations that are very traditional, very, very, um, very much community based. Um, and, and, I, and I work at pace. 
And I'm the worst person to come into a traditional organization that needs real change because I just want to smash things up and rebuild really quickly. And of course, I've learned as I've as I've got more professionally mature to try and slow down. My, my colleagues will say not there yet, but you're learning to make sure that actually there's a time and a place that that equalizer of of when to step in, when to step back is something I'm learning all the time. So I'm assuming you use the Cotter change management kind of process when you're bringing things in? Well, I think the difficulty with change is that it absolutely relates to the context. <clears throat> There's plenty of theory around how we change, how we how we change the current situation and we sort of unfreeze it and then, and, and, and then look at how we're going to install that, that, that the new culture, install the new values. But it always comes back down to, to people always comes down to people, behaviours. And for me, core to all of this is understanding individual differences. I remember doing a piece of work um, a long time ago, which was based around a, a housing association. It's, it's well out of my comfort zone because it's not sport. Um, but I, one of the key observations I took away from there is that this, a, a large housing association was trying to make some changes with people. And they thought it would all be about money. It would all be about the environment that those people were going to be in. It would all be about um, whether or not they were providing the right benefits. It would be about the location. Um, and it would be about uh, how they uh, how they in implemented that. But it was about, could I sit next to my mate? Could I still see the school where my grandson goes to school so I can pick them up? I know when to go and pick them up. Can I, can I take a plant because this looks like a sanitized environment? I like the chair that I brought in from home. So these are all these are all people things. It all comes down to those individual differences. And the role of the leader is to understand those individual differences so that the change then becomes easy. So we've discussed this before and you've touched on it there. You're not a fan of psychometric testing and personality profiling, are you? So I guess, first of all, I'd ask what your opinion is and, and just to elaborate on it a little. And then secondary to that, um, you've mentioned there is about understanding people. Well just purely out of interest what kind of metric do you use in your head to to learn to understand people and to help support them through change or to get on board with the decision or to help them reach their full potential what's the kind of the thing that you use and, and, and why don't you like psychometric testing I, I oh you've got me wrong i love psychometrics and i and i think psychometrics in the right used in the right way with the right experts given the right feedback can be powerful all of our leadership programs use that needs analysis at the beginning. Okay. And, and psychometric profiling is, a, is an important part of it. Um, we, um, without going into, into individual names of, of some of the psychometrics, the key thing for me is the difference between type and trait. So what we do is we focus on the personality. We don't focus on typing people. I think there's a massive risk in psychometrics, in sport, in football, by people being sucked in by what can be described as charlatans with commercial and um, commercial outcomes to be gained. So they will market a product and there were, there were several of them on the market and the evidence is no more than astrology. Now, if that is something which drives people and, and can get people to change, then fantastic. So I'm sure that there is a place. But for me, if we're going to explain that why to people, why are we doing things? There's a real evidence as to why we are doing things the way we are, we will use um, a, a trait-based mechanism to understand your personality, to help you understand that, to understand where your derailers may well be, 
um, and to understand what your motives, your values, your your preferences might well be in, in terms of the culture of the organization. Where do you work best? What, what's the culture that you're going to thrive in? Um, but it's a continuum. So we're not going to say, we're not going to tell somebody that you're a type, you, you are a red or you're a, you know, a, a pink rhino or you're, um, you, you're going to be an extrovert because the danger of that is that you then get somebody that looks at what they see as this, this imprint, this model of a leader and they say, well, I can't be that because I'm not, because I'm not extroverted. I'm not gregarious. I'm not open to change. Um, actually, I've been told I'm a compassionate leader. I'm empathetic. I'm quiet. I'm reflective. I'm altruistic, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the danger of that is that that person then doesn't go for a role. And there's an even bigger risk when we use psychometrics for selection assessment for jobs and we uh, and we use them as well. We're actually specifically looking for this type, rather than give somebody the opportunity to say, "How would you flex?" One of my colleagues is probably the polar opposite of me, and yet she has an incredible um, ability to be able to to move and adapt as a leader based on the people that she's with and the context. Mm-hmm. So, if you were to be recruiting, for example what would you look at and how would you, I know this is an awful term to use, but categorize people, I guess, would it be based on skill set? Would it be based on experience? Are there a number of traits that you would look for to complement you? Um, and, and how would you identify that? So there's nothing wrong with, firstly, if you're, if you're recruiting, it should be specific to the role. So going through some kind of work sample process um, is, is always going to be useful. And this is a massive topic, isn't it? If we if we go into how you recruit effectively, one of the one of the the dilemmas that practitioners have got when they're recruiting is that we understand that if you if you look at something like intelligence or, or, or your general cognitive ability, we know that that's one of the best predictors of performance in task for a range of of jobs. But we also know it can discriminate against certain groups, positively and and, and negatively. Um, so we know that if you're disabled or you come from certain areas, that it could be really difficult for you going through that particular that particular test, that particular assessment. But we know that that's the best way of doing it. So you've got a dilemma there. Um, we also know that psychometrics can be really useful. We know work sample exercises can be really useful in if they're related to the role. So there are a range of different things that you can do. And of course, it then becomes expensive if you've got lots of people applying. But that's the best way of doing it. A range of different um, ways of identifying what's the talent, what's the very specific element that you're looking for that you're going to break down. And I use the word talent really loosely. What are the specific skills that you're looking for, the technical elements? And then what's the cultural fit? So maybe you are looking for someone who is... Um, who is going to be open and gregarious, open to change and gregarious and come up with disruptive ideas because the actual team that they're going to go in, you're looking for something like that. But we've got to give somebody an opportunity to be able to come back. You've got to use that in an interview to be able to say, okay, this is what your psychometrics are showing. Tell us how you would, as an introvert, work in a very, very um, outgoing sales team, for example, which is packed full of people who whose preference is to be extroverted and, and open to change. You've got to give that individual the opportunity to be able to come back and to talk about how they would deal with it. 
So you've mentioned the word disruption now probably three or four times and the last time we met we actually did talk about the book The Art of Insubordination. Looking at that book and looking at your interpretation of being disruptive as a leader, how does that impact your role working for an organisation as big as the Premier League? Where's the trade-off there with being disruptive for the right reasons whilst maintaining the professional integrity of a worldwide global brand? It's a good question and, and, and I think I come back to professional maturity. It's very easy to be leading a startup that you you own and be as disruptive as you want and um, you know we've seen some very strange business decisions from say Elon Musk when he's when he's gone into Twitter he he doesn't appear to be putting people first I don't know enough about the situation so it's very easy to say it's cool to be disruptive it's cool to be a pirate to 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 quote Steve Jobs right but when you when you are within a a frame when you're within um an organization that has broader strategic aims um you have to be able to understand the context within which you sit now innovation disruption creativity are all key elements of being able to 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 think better right but so is critical and so is analytical and so there are a number of number of ways of developing an idea and if we if we if we think the way we've always thought we won't come up with with different ideas there are different types of people to 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 we've just been been speaking around this that that may well be able to think differently in different contexts so how do you support those people who might be really critical really analytical to think creatively to think strategically how do you get a balance of people that can throw in some disruptive ideas but actually the doing is really important that one of my favorite phrases um is when uh, an admiral during the second world war was asked how they were going to deal with u-boats and their response was boil the oceans and everyone laughed and said, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, I don't know. I'm the ideas man. And that for me is, is, is exactly the point. Is it, It's fine to come up with those disruptive ideas, but how does it then fit within the context? Is it is it possible to be able to do it? But without those wacky, crazy ideas, actually, you're never going to get the, the, the change. And there's probably a reason why we're able to build better technology during wars or we're able to find better vaccines during COVID-19 because we're, we're faced with crisis because we have to we're at the we're at the edge of the cliff we have to find some better way of doing it and that's when you need that disruption that creativity and that that innovation comfortable as you feel to to talk about this you technically have a disability which is not a visible disability which must be quite a challenge for you and I just wondered if that was a challenge and what have you taken from your experiences of having a non-visible disability yeah thanks for that I, I think um I don't like the word disability, but it's it's with us, and so I'll own it and, and talk about it. But there were many years whereby I wouldn't use it. I I, I was told I wasn't deaf enough, um, or I wasn't um, uh, I, I I was I was hearing. I'm chair of UK Deaf Sport, and yet um, my my hearing is not as profound as as others. I can hear. I just struggle to be able to understand the individual that's talking. Um, what it's what it's given me. I think is is a real sort of understanding of um, I, I'm a very vocal person um, and talking through ideas is where I'm at my best. But there are some places, for example, in a boardroom where I need to, to be calm. I need to take a bit of a step back. It's that balance again, when to step in, when to step back. Um, and one of the best environments is in a UK dashboard board meeting because we have interpreters, we have a range of hearing uh, abilities. We have people who are hearing, who support deaf children. We have people who are 
have profound um, profound deafness. Um, we have people who have cochlear implants and people who have hearing aids, people who sign. Um, but there are 12 million deaf people in the UK. So it, it's something which impacts on all of us, but we don't actually talk about a great deal. But in that board meeting, everything is calm and everybody gets the opportunity to speak because of the fact that we are very conscious of the fact that when that individual is speaking or is signing, we have to give them that spotlight. So from a professional maturity perspective, it's given me a little bit more of a, a calmness, but I am also very lucky that I feel confident to be able to speak up and say, I, I didn't hear you, or the technology isn't allowing me to lip read you, or the technology isn't allowing me to see captions. And, and I'm lucky that I can do that because there are lots of people who are in leadership roles or, or aiming for leadership roles who don't feel comfortable doing that. And it's a massive barrier. So I guess that comes back to, I know we don't like to use the terms or definitive terms, introvert, extrovert, um, but you know, typically the typical idea of an extrovert is somebody that's willing to be vocal and to stand up. However, you do seem to have qualities of what you would see as an introvert. So I guess my question to you would be, what do you see yourself as? And is it the same in your professional life and your personal life? Uh, so I'm, I'm comfortable using the, 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 the terms extrovert, introvert, um, but it's a continuum between the two. Um, where what I have to learn to do is to understand that not, not everybody needs loud peers. Sometimes that there's an there's an element just take a bit of a step back. There's a time there's a time to talk and there's a time to think. Um, a good example of this is that from a strength perspective, I'm I'm very good at the technical elements of, of certain aspects of business in terms of developing strategy, in terms of thinking um, thinking more broadly or thinking thinking more around future. But I have to really work on elements like finance and governance. And so if I know that's going to be the case, I'll set aside some time and it will be quite thinking time for me. And I have to be able to set aside that time and I have to make sure I can really focus and get into a bit of a, a, a state of flow to be able to, to work on that particular project. But no, it's a continuum. And my learning is how do I make sure that for the right context, I can be quiet and I can take a step back and I can let other people speak. I can let other people lead. And, and it's not because I want to be arrogant and be at the front all the time, but I get my energy from talking through ideas and big picture stuff. And that's not always the right way of solving a problem. Yeah. And I think I, we may have discussed this before. I'm not sure, but the book leading quietly, I think the biggest thing for me that I took away from that book was it's not necessarily about individual personality traits and preferences. It's to do with organizational structure. So for example, um, it's not necessarily about big, bold, brash statements or projects. Success is usually the sum of a million small but consequential decisions. So in other words, it's about the actions of the organization working quietly, diligently, performing lots of the more understated kind of processes to be successful. Whereas sometimes we see leadership and success being more identified with the big, the brash, the bold. What are your views on that and how does that impact on you as a leader? So on our programs um, and, and certainly in the conversations I have, we're always talking about adaptive leadership and how you can adapt, how you can adapt to certain situations, certain contexts. <clears throat> and I think that's really important. It's, it, it, you know, we, 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 look at, we look at the military and we, we think, well, that's going to be a very um, authoritarian directive organization. Yet a lot of the things that we learn from the military are about context. And it's about, uh, as TikTok would say, it's about that, that context over control. How do we 
how do we understand that that individual is an expert and if they're dealing with a, a problem in the moment maybe a directive is you know is, is not going to work so that adaptive leadership is important um i talk about eq3 um the idea of that emotional intelligence that self-awareness how do i understand myself how do i understand other people and how do i understand the context the environment how do i adapt to change how do i empower others to adapt to that change and how do i how do i sort of that, that graphic equalizer to understand that so let's use the two terms you gave me introvert and extrovert that continuum that in a crisis an extrovert might might be really quiet and might might be actually quite scared of, of of change or what might might be happening especially in a crisis and an introvert might all of a sudden change and adapt and actually okay these are the these are the things we're going to do the step-by-step -step actions and so leaders come from everywhere and that individual differences or that identical uniqueness being able to being able to understand in other people what happens when the environment tilts and understanding your team understanding the people around you that how you adapt how you have different conversations is it is it screaming in the changing room at half time because sometimes it might be to be motivational is it actually a quiet hand on 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 the back when something's not gone wrong is it actually leaving somebody just to walk around so it, it, that adaptive leadership is at the core i think of of, of modern day leadership I completely agree. And obviously, Piers, you know my brother. I'll give him a little name drop here. Damien, obviously, you met him as academy manager of a League Two club. He's now working as head of coaching for a League One club. Obviously, he's on some of your leadership programmes. And probably the most significant discussion I remember having with my brother, because I don't know if you're aware of this, we used to manage a non-league football team in Wales, um, co-managers together, um, was we realised, talking of professional maturity, in our probably second or third season, that being a leader is not necessarily about how you feel in the moment. It's what they need. It's about what your team needs. So talking about being adaptable and, and wearing a mask. So we would give a team talk sometimes that was more vocal or more energetic than we felt it, you know, we felt at the time, but we felt the team needed it. Or sometimes we would, we would give a really calm, um, considered team talk based on what we thought the team needed and whether we could see they were particularly anxious or nervous. And I think that was a massive learning curve for me um, at such a young age. And I've definitely taken that into my career, actually, when I'm conducting myself in team meetings or whether I'm leading a, a workshop, I'll try and read the room and work out what that team needs at that time and try and adapt yeah. to that and be what they need. Yeah, absolutely. That I talk about that graphic equalizer. It, it's understanding that, that things change. And that's why um, we, we need the evidence base. Like I said, the, the academic evidence base, we need people with years of experience to be able to say, <clears throat> excuse me, this is how it works. So we need those leaders to be able to say, this worked for me. So we like those stories. We like those narratives, uh, right? But but actually, um, it, when we go on a course, when we go on a, a master's degree that says, we're going to teach you leadership or we're going to teach you business, the one thing that it, it, it doesn't do is it doesn't teach you about your self-awareness. It doesn't teach you about why, why should I learn this and, and in what way? And one of the things I'm always trying to encourage our learners, our leaders to, to do is to use to challenge some of the, the theory that we might well give them and to adapt it and work out what it looks like as a tool in in, in the academy. Um, and that adaptive leadership, understanding how the people in your charge are changing is really important because we go back to the, the psychometrics. If you type people and you say, well, that's an introvert, so I'm going to tackle them differently. 
you're not allowing that individual to be able to um, operate within the context and, and, and within that environment. You, you might find that, that actually they're a different person than they, are, they were yesterday because there's something going on around. And there are different perspectives, aren't there, in terms of how do I understand the people in my, my care? Some leaders say I'm there to be a leader. I'm not there to be a friend. Um, but I don't see how you can't understand an individual as long as it's as long as it's professional as long as you are um, respecting that individual in terms of the conversations you're having you 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 can't possibly lead if you don't understand the individual that's opposite you but we're starting to step then into the world of um the art of influence right we're not talking about necessarily telling people what to do or being authoritarian we're talking about building relationships and influencing in a more subtle way if you had to determine yourself as a leader what three leadership books have you probably taken the most from and would you recommend to others um that, that's a good one and, and they're they're probably um they're, they're, they're probably ones that, that that everybody has read i mean good good to great for me was the first real book that i read that um i felt really kind of changed my perspective on things but that was that was partly because it was it was evidence-based it was based around an awful lot of research um then it allowed me to start to think about level five leadership in terms of values and, and in terms of you know how, how we're how we're how we're changing and some of the things that we're we're, we're thinking about um then uh as you said the art of insubordination I love, and there are a series of books in terms of how can we disrupt, how can we think about things more creatively? What are the kind of things that we are, um, what are we going to do to innovate? How are we going to do things differently? How are we going to change the way that we do things in you know, in, the, in the right way? Um, but also, I think around strengths-based leadership, under, understanding understanding how we focus on what we're good at, that adaptive leadership, being able to understand some of the the things that we are really good at is at the forefront and at the basis foundation of everything that we do with all of our programs. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, your EQ3, we've, well, we've spoken about this before. I've recently written a leadership program for our leaders and it's based on knowing yourself and your own actions, knowing your team and then leading your team. So slightly, you know, similar, but slightly different. The, the biggest thing I've discovered working with leaders now over, oh wow, the last decade is that most people and I've done this in the past but with professional maturity I'd like to think I do it less sometimes put their own feelings or their own ego at the forefront of a decision or their actions and that is a real challenge for people so what advice would you have to people that sometimes struggle to overcome the inner, the inner chimp or the inner voice that's the that's the major risk Dom is 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 if somebody is putting their ego first and there's a there's a good book by um Ryan Holiday, which is um, the ego is the enemy, which which talks around that, and pretty much every speaker that we bring in these days will talk around authentic, compassionate, ethical, values-driven leadership, and not putting yourself first. And um, you know, lots of people talk about seven habits with with Stephen Covey, um, but actually, it's in in you, you can see a series coming. But in the eighth habit. Um, one of the things he, one of the things he talks about is is being a trim tabber is is leading from behind is actually you don't need to be the person at the front and um because because I'm somebody whose personality lends itself to talking through ideas and and being comfortable um having conversations and having quite bubbly conversations um how you how you take a, a step back as a leader is something that I'm still trying to to deal with that balance 
it's it's not binary it's a balance and and one of the things that um i have to do a lot as an extrovert is to be able to take a step back and i'm still learning the best way of doing that and and sometimes that will come across as ego it will come across as wanting to be at the front and wanting to be the leader um whereas actually sometimes a lot of the leadership doesn't come from the person at the front and we see that more and more i think yeah i guess we're looking at distributed leadership models there and empowering the teams around us which can be quite hard to do because it takes a lot of confidence in your own ability to pull things back if things get out of control and also to relinquish power is quite hard for a lot of people to do in my experience because obviously you know you're drawn into these positions because you want to make a difference you want to make a change and then all of a sudden we find the most effective way to make change and to make a difference is to empower others which can be a really difficult balance right oh the, with the with the, the performance leaders that i will coach uh, or that sit on the programs, the number one dilemma that always comes up is when to, when do I step in? When do I take a step back? When do I, when do I, when do I tell someone what to do? When do I let them learn? Um, when do I, when do I tell somebody? When do I, when do I shout? When am I, when am I quiet? When am I calm? Um, when do I do and when do I delegate? Um, and it's the, it, it, leaders getting themselves wrapped up in doing, doing, doing all the time. And, and like I said to you before, dentists have bad teeth, right? I'll do the same. I'm really bad at, and um, I want to do because I want to be involved. You asked me the question about chair versus chief exec. Being a chair, you you, you can't do the doing, and and you want to. You want to get your, your your sleeves rolled up and get involved. So when to delegate is really really hard for leaders because they they have a their own way of doing it, and that comes back to adaptive leadership. Are they adaptable enough to understand that actually there are some experts in front of you? And there are lots and lots of um, cliches around that, not being the, 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 the most intelligent person in the room, making sure that you're hiring people who are talented individuals with real technical skills. They're experts. Let them do it. What are the three lessons that you've taken from your professional maturity, as you put it, your, your journey through to where you are now? And, you know, how can you kind of share those with me? So what are your three lessons from your career journey so far? The, the, the first I'll go back to um, when I was um, working with, um, with with British fencing, that, that, that first pendulum swim between understanding, am I, am I good enough to be able to do it? And that imposter syndrome. So we, we understand now that vulnerable leadership is actually quite acceptable, but, but back then vulnerability wasn't acceptable. And I work in an environment in football whereby reputation means everything. So to put your hand up and say, I don't, I don't know the answer is, is the hardest thing. People are afraid of doing it. So it's, it's being afraid of saying, I, I, I'm not good at this. And I was afraid to do that. I, I was afraid of being vulnerable and saying, I'm feeling like an imposter here. I think you're going to catch me out in a minute. So that, that's probably lesson one. Um, lesson two is around, um, I think, around individual differences. Um, individual differences at the heart of absolutely everything that 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 I do now, um, and I had I was performance director in Rio for Paralympic fencing, and um, we had two athletes that were very very different, two coaches that were very very different, and understanding as I said the individuals, you the environment and how things can change, and you you have a an expectation actually that the people who are calm and and, and introverted will, will will manage things in a in the same way in the cauldron of a Paralympic Games. 
but they don't. They, 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 they tilt and they change. So it's understanding individual differences and how people can change, that EQ3 element. Um, and the final thing is about adapting. It's about that I, I worked in Saudi Arabia for a while. It's a very strange environment when you come from Western society to be able to be wrapped up in a culture that does things very, very differently. Um, and there are lots of conversations we're having now around um, the, the, the World Cup and around culture and around um, that, that, those kind of changes. Um, understanding different cultures, understanding how you can how you can adapt as a leader and how do you adapt as a leader by understanding more about yourself. So wrapped up in all of those three things is knowing yourself. And are, are you continuously learning as a leader? Are you continuously understanding how to learn, that endless curiosity? Are you continuously understanding how to think better, critically, analytically, strategically, creatively? Are you understanding your own personal leadership approach, your identity? Are you understanding how you can communicate that? Because communication is so important. How you sell a concept rather than just tell somebody about it. Storytelling. And are you resilient? And I think resilience gets a bad rep a lot of the time, but it's about, are you looking after yourself? Are you putting your oxygen mask on before anyone else's? Um, and we don't. We go back to the fact that we know we should. We know we should sleep better. We know we should look after ourselves. We know we should we'd exercise. We don't. We know we should eat less chocolate, more greens. But Piers doesn't. Um, and it's understanding, I think, that that well-being for oneself. So understanding all of those things wrapped up, I think, in in, in that adaptive leadership and learning. I love that. Maybe we call this podcast Eat Your Greens First. Piers, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing to talk to you. Yeah, right right, right back at you. And it's, um, it, it, I, I wish I'd, I'd been prepared for this, the, the, um, the books one. <laughs> if you're still here at the end of the episode, thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by Pearson, the world's learning company. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, and if you did, please make sure to spend just a little time to like or subscribe wherever you receive this podcast in order for me to continue to bring it to you completely free of charge. Until next time. And now, for inspiration and conversation of a different kind, Pearson, the world's learning company, is all about supporting lifelong learning. And, as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why they've asked over 6,000 teachers and 1,000 students about schools in England today, and what the future should look like. In the brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover the barriers to learning that we need to break down and how teachers and students are pioneering change. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Pearson School Report. <laughs>